And this week we're back in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in chronological order to find out for ourselves what Jesus really said, what he really taught, what he really did, so that we don't have to hear it from anybody else. We can see it for ourselves firsthand, firsthand. And so last time we were in our study, we saw Jesus sending out his disciples in pairs for the first time to do ministry without him, possibly for a few weeks. It may have been as much as a few months. And we're right in the middle of Jesus' parting instructions to his disciples. In this study, we're going to pick up right where we left off. There's no easy segue into this, no easy on-ramp into today's message. We're just going to jump right back in. Matthew 10, verse 23, first book in the New Testament. Matthew 10, verse 23. And we're going to be right back in the middle of Jesus' instructions to his disciples. Verse 23, he says, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And I just want to point out that Jesus doesn't encourage his disciples to intentionally become martyrs. He doesn't say, if you know they're coming to your house at a certain time, stay and wait for them. He says, that shouldn't be your go-to way of handling persecution. If we could save our lives and go on living for his glory and purposes on the earth, we should do that. Staying somewhere in the face of imminent death is a specific calling. It's a specific calling. It's what we see people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer doing in Nazi Germany. Most Christians fled Germany and probably did the smart thing doing that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a specific call from God to stay until his life was taken from him. And he knew that going into it. And he was called to do that. But if all believers had the approach of we will simply stay where there is persecution until they kill us. If every believer had had that approach in the early church, we wouldn't have made it very far. We wouldn't have made it very far. The gospel wouldn't have traveled out, but the gospel was scattered across the earth by people fleeing persecution, taking with them the gospel. It continues, For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel. And then I want you to underline, before the Son of Man comes. Before the Son of Man comes. Have you ever heard it said, if you've been around the church a while or grew up in the church, Jesus will not come back until everybody on earth has heard the gospel. Anybody ever heard that before? It's a pretty popular belief. Where that comes from is Matthew 24, verse 14. I'll read it to you. Jesus says there, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then, then the end will come. Well, that seems to contradict what Jesus says in verse 23. Because he says, for assuredly I say to you, his disciples, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, before he comes again. So remember, whatever view we hold of Scripture, it has to harmonize, it has to be in unity with all of Scripture. You can't have a view on a specific verse that makes something else in the Bible untrue. It has to all work together or your doctrine is wrong. So if you believe that the gospel has to reach everybody before Jesus returns, then you're in conflict with verse 23 that we just read. However, there is an explanation that accounts for both verses being true, and it's this. Write this down. The rapture is going to happen before everybody on earth has heard the gospel. The rapture is going to happen before everybody on earth has heard the gospel. 
I'll walk you through this as briefly as I can. In between the rapture, which is Jesus coming for his church. He doesn't come down to earth. The Bible says we meet him in the clouds. He comes for his church. We go to be with him in the rapture. Then you have the second coming of Christ, which is Jesus coming with his church. We return with him to the earth. In between those two events is a period known as the tribulation. It's a specific seven-year period. And during that time, all kinds of bad things happen. You can read the book of Revelation and thank Jesus that you won't be here. Okay, that's good news. During this period, the Bible tells us, this tribulation period, that Jesus will raise up 144,000 Jewish missionaries to preach the gospel and will also send, as fantastic as this sounds, an angel literally flying around the world preaching the gospel from the heavens, from the sky, to every single person on earth. And you can actually read that in Revelation 14. It lays that all out for you. So when Jesus says to his disciples, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, he's speaking about the rapture. He's saying, I'm going to come for you before the gospel even reaches every single city in Israel. I'm going to come for you before that happens. Verse 24, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? I put this on your outline. Beelzebub is just another name for Satan. It means Lord of the flies, but it was a name that the Jews used for Satan. And you might remember that the Pharisees explained away the miracles of Jesus by telling people that he was doing them by the power of Satan by the power of Beelzebub. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, just know, if they called me the Messiah, Jesus, God in the flesh, if they called me a worker of Satan, what do you think they're gonna call you? How do you think they're gonna treat you? Write this down. We must remember that part of being a disciple of Jesus is not expecting to be treated better than him. Part of being a disciple of Jesus is not expecting to be treated better than him. When we run into difficulties for loving Jesus and something rises up in us and says, this is unjust, this shouldn't be, just remember, Jesus didn't exactly get a fair shake either. And we have no right to demand or expect that we be treated better by men than Jesus Christ was. We're not greater than him or the 12 disciples. So when our lives are easier than theirs, it's our good fortune to live in this place during this time. When life is difficult, we must remember how Jesus was treated himself. Verse 26, Jesus says, Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. As I've told you before, this is one of those passages that pastors, especially youth pastors, love to use because they're able to say, just so you know, everything in your life will be on a big screen one day. Yes, even that. Even that. And everybody goes, oh my gosh. They say, come forward to the front and repent. And then everybody comes forward to the front because they're scared out of their minds, right? I don't believe that's true because of the way God talks about forgiveness in the Bible. Even back in the Old Testament, I put this on your outlines, in Isaiah, the Lord said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake 
and I will not remember your sins. It means they're done as far as he is concerned. He's not saying, I won't remember them, but fortunately I keep a data backup that I can go to later so we can go back and watch them. He's saying they're done. They are forgotten. It is as though they never happen. That's the power of the forgiveness of God. I know you don't want to implicate yourself, but I trust on the inside you're all going, hallelujah. Okay. The subject being discussed here is the Pharisees and their hypocrisy in claiming that Jesus was being led by Satan. It was hypocrisy because, in fact, they were the ones being led by Satan. In that context, Jesus says to his disciples, there's nothing covered. There's nothing going on in their hearts that won't be revealed. There's nothing hidden in their hearts that won't be made known. In other words, their true colors will be exposed. And Jesus doesn't even mention a judgment day here, by the way. So he's actually implying that in their lifetime, in the lifetime of the disciples, these Pharisees will be exposed for who they are. And I really think that's true for all of us. Nobody makes it all the way through their whole life living as a fraud, living as a fake, without it being exposed at some point. Nobody makes it. Nobody who is really a jerk and an awful person dies with an amazing reputation. It all comes out in the end. It's true for all of us. And by the way, if you're not a believer, I need to tell you this, it's very likely that your entire life will be put on display one day because it will be evidence in a court case. Because when you reject the forgiveness of God, when you reject the love of God, you are filing a case against God. And your case is, God, I don't need you to make me holy. I don't need you to make me clean. My life speaks for itself. I'm a good enough person on my own to meet your standards. I don't need your son, Jesus. That's the case that you're claiming against God when you choose not to follow Jesus or accept the forgiveness of Jesus. And in that case... All evidence is on the table. And I don't say that to scare you. I say it because you need to know that's the case you're making against God when you reject the forgiveness of Jesus. No one's going to measure up to that. No one's going to measure up to that. That's why we should be so glad that God has forgotten our sins, brought us into his family, written our names in the book of life, and we're not going to be going to court ever. There's no case pending for us. We're already forgiven. We're not even charged anymore. Verse 27, Jesus says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Notice where Jesus is telling them that their most profound divine revelation is going to come. Are you getting the picture here? He's not talking about darkness as in sin and darkness. He's talking about early morning, the quiet place at night the secret place where you're tucked away when you're in his word, when you're in prayer, when you're in relationship to him, and God is speaking to you intimately. He says, that's where I'm gonna give you the revelation. And what I tell you there, man, go preach that from the rooftops. But the revelation is going to come in the quiet place, one-on-one with the Lord. Verse 28, this is heavy. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Those are the comforting words of Jesus for someone who says, what if we're really scared? And Jesus says, scared of man? Scared of man? He says, if we're going to have a conversation on the subject of fear, don't forget 
I'm not only more worthy of your love than anything else, I'm also more worthy of your fear. Man holds your human body in his hands. Jesus says, I hold your soul, your eternity in my hands. And he says, rather than just some cute comforting words, he says, don't forget that. Don't forget that. The hell used there is, is the word Gehenna. It's not the word Hades. And there's a big difference. Hades, before the resurrection of Jesus, Hades is the abode of the dead. It's, it's a dimension is the best way to think about it. A dimension of death. There's a good side that in the Bible is called paradise or the bosom of Abraham. And then there's a bad side, a place of torment. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he went during those three days to Hades, to the good side, to paradise, to the bosom of Abraham, grabbed everyone who was waiting there because they were waiting for Jesus' blood to cover their sins so that they could go to heaven. Jesus goes down there and he said, it's done, let's go. The good side of Hades is empty then and it's empty now. If we die now, we go immediately to be with Jesus. We do not enter Hades because Jesus has made a way for us to go immediately to the presence of the Father in heaven. Gehenna is where Hades is going to ultimately end up. Gehenna is the lake of fire. It's a dimension of active torment and eternal separation from God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And there's no way for me to make this text say something that it's not really saying. Jesus is being very, very blunt. He's saying, if you find yourself in a moment where your whole being is ruled by fear, if you find yourself with a gun to your head or a sword to your throat and everything in you wants to be dictated by fear, just remember I'm still more worthy of your fear too. Don't lose your eternal perspective. I can't soften that up or dumb it down. Jesus is just saying what he's saying and it's as heavy as it sounds. What does the Bible say about fear? Proverbs 29, the fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's also accurate because Jesus has an eternal perspective. He's looking at eternity as he says this. He's looking at our time on earth as a dot and eternity as the size of the universe. That's the perspective Jesus has. And that's why he's so blunt. And that's why he might seem uncaring, but he's telling you the most caring thing he can. He's saying, you would be out of your mind to sell out your eternity to try and preserve your life, which in comparison is the size of a grain of sand. You would be out of your mind to take that deal. One last point on this verse here. Whenever I get the chance to point this out, I feel the need to do this. Write this down. Jesus believes in hell. Jesus believes in hell. There's a whole sub-movement in Christianity as, as various people try to find ways to make the truth of the situation more palatable, more easy to swallow. And one of the ways that we sometimes do that is people say, well, we don't really know if hell is a, you know, a literal place or if it even really exists or if there's something else. Jesus believes in hell. And he says it very, very plainly here. We all need to know that. Verse 29, he goes on and he says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? Sparrows in those times are something they would eat that would cost like five cents. 
but they'd have a big plate of like barbecue sparrows and would just go to town on those. They're worth almost nothing. And Jesus says, listen, not one of those dies anywhere in the world that your father doesn't know about. So when you're going through difficulty because of your love for Jesus, he wants you to know that the father sees it all. He's never forgotten you. He's never taken his eyes off you. And he's being blessed by your faithfulness to him. There's not one tiny thing that happens in your life that he's not aware of, that he's not watching. He's not neglecting you for even a second. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Verse 30, he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's not impressive for someone like me or Dave, but for some of you, you'll find a blessing in that. You know, you're thinking, big deal. I know how many hairs are on your head too. But it's the idea is someone who has a full head of hair, just so you know. The idea is he knows even more about you than you do. He knows even more about you than you do. When you cry out to God and you say, God, you don't understand, he's saying, I understand more about you than you even understand about yourself. Verse 31, do not fear. Not a suggestion, a command. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. A troubling couple of verses, especially upon first reading. But you remember what we talked about earlier about how you always interpret the Bible by taking into account everything else in the Bible. And in this instance, fortunately, we have a major incident that we have to take into consideration. Peter, the one to whom Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Peter, the great church planner, pastor, apostle, in the future, after Jesus has said this, will deny even knowing Jesus three times. Once with a curse. He will deny even knowing him. But he will be personally restored and forgiven by Jesus and will go on to be one of the great church fathers. Jesus didn't damn or disqualify or disown Peter. So what does this verse mean? What is God saying? I would suggest to you that this is what it comes down to. You guys remember Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I love that show. Speaking of stupid decisions, that show was one, one big stupid decision made by one contestant after another. I'm on a roll. Let's keep going. But they would always have this signature phrase that Regis would always ask, and he would always say, final answer? Is that your final answer? Final answer. Cat is spelt with a K. And that's <laughs> usually what would happen. But I think it's kind of like that. This is the idea. The idea is... Do you believe that Jesus is God who died for your sins and is the only way for you to be saved and has saved you to bring you into his family for eternity? No. Final answer. Final answer. I'm not in process. I'm not still weighing this. It's my final answer. What happened in Peter's life shows that even when he denied knowing Jesus... It wasn't his final answer. It wasn't his final answer because he jumped out of the boat to run to Jesus when he saw him resurrected. It clearly wasn't his final answer. He was in a moment of fear and confusion 
and it wasn't his final answer. This is such a heavy, heavy verse because this is, this is playing out literally every day in the Middle East right now as the Islamic State marches across country after country. Today, someone in the Middle East will have a sword held to their neck by someone from the Islamic State who will demand that they answer the question whether or not their belief in Jesus is their final answer. That will happen somewhere in the world today. Or will they recant? It's happening right now. And I, I wept when I read of towns where some parents were denying Jesus in that situation. And the most amazing part of the story I read is they said not a single child denied Jesus in that situation. Not one. Not one. Even when some of their parents did. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that the issue there is not fear. The issue is faith. Because I got to think those kids were even more scared than their parents. The issue wasn't fear. The issue was faith. There was just no doubt in their mind that Jesus was real, that he was God. And they couldn't recant. They just couldn't because they knew it was true. And what Jesus says next throws many people for a loop. There are some people, you might be in this room, this is going to change your entire view of what Jesus was all about, especially as we head into Christmas. Many Christians have no idea that this is even in the Bible. This is coming straight from the mouth of Jesus. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So when he says, I've come to bring a sword, he's not saying I've come to cause violence. He's saying I've come to sever even the most intimate relationships. He says that's going to happen as a result of me coming to the earth. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me. When we read what Jesus actually said, we should come away with this realization. You can write this down. There are no casual believers in the kingdom of Jesus. There are no casual believers in the kingdom of Jesus. He's saying if you think you're a believer, but you've not yet reached the place where your relationship with me is more important than your relationship with any other person, you're probably not on the team yet. You're not worthy of me. Jesus is always very, very upfront about the seriousness and the cost of following him. And each of us needs to pray and make sure that we understand that if following Jesus isn't costing you anything in your life, anything, then you might need to ask if you're actually carrying your cross and following Jesus. The gospel sometimes causes the severing of relationships. People will sometimes, by word or deed, require you to choose between a relationship with them or a relationship with Jesus. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you a promotion or your job. I don't want to lie. It may cost you your marriage. It may cost you your family. It may cost you your kids. 
I pray that none of those things would happen to you or I. None of those things. I really do. I don't want any of those things to happen to me. But Jesus is saying, if they do, if they do happen to you, if that situation falls into your lap in your life, you've got to choose me. Because if you don't, then you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me. Jesus is not a lover with low self-esteem who will put up with being neglected and abused, treated poorly, and ignored. He's not someone with needy issues. He's someone who says, listen, what I am offering you deserves everything. And if you're unwilling to offer that to me, then you're not worthy of me. He lays it out very, very plainly. Very plainly. As I was prepping this message, I read this one note by John MacArthur, and I tried to figure out a way to steal it, but I just can't improve upon it, so I'm just going to read it to you. This is what John MacArthur said. He said, Though the ultimate end of the gospel is peace with God, the immediate result of the gospel is frequently conflict. Conversion to Christ can result in strained family relationships, persecution, and even martyrdom. And then this is huge. Following Christ presupposes. So following Christ assumes on our part a willingness to endure such hardships. Though he is called Prince of Peace, Christ will have no one deluded into thinking that he calls believers to a life devoid of all conflict. Interestingly, this is the first time Jesus will mention the word cross to his disciples. So think how strange and grotesque this image must have been when he says, you must take up your cross and follow me. Remember, they don't know that Jesus is going to die on a cross yet. They know what crucifixion is. The Romans are doing it every day at that time. So Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, which would be like me saying, hey, you know what you guys need to do? Take up your electric chair. Follow me. Follow me. And they're thinking, what? what? This imagery is, is so strange. He hasn't told them yet that he's going to die. So please understand this. What Jesus is telling his disciples is he's saying, we cannot receive his life without first handing over ours, spiritually and possibly physically. Jesus is saying, I will give you life that never ends, but in return, your life here on earth becomes mine. It becomes mine. That's the trade. A life that is destined to end in death for a life that in reality will never end and will go on forever. If he wants us to live in peace and safety in Canada and work faithfully at our job as a quiet witness to him, it's his call. If he wants us to go to the Middle East and die preaching to Muslims, it's his call. Our lives belong to him. They belong to him. They belong to him. Everything from where we work to what we do with our money to whether we have kids or not to how many kids we have to how much we serve, all of that stuff should belong to God. Should belong to God. The closer you get to Christ, the more you realize that there are decisions we're all making that we really have no right to make. He should be the one making them for us. And that's the process of sanctification, learning how to hand over more and more and more of your life till he has it all. Till he has it all, till he gets to write the beginning, the end, and everything in between. That's the process of sanctification. Verse 39, he says, He who finds his life will lose it, 
and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I would encourage you just to underline that whole verse. What Jesus is saying is he says, listen, if your whole goal is to figure life out here on earth, if your whole goal is to get everybody to like you and to be at peace with everybody here on earth at the expense of following me, if you try to save your life here by denying me, if you live a lifestyle of compromise so that following me doesn't cost you anything here, you won't end up saving anything. If you neglect me to save a relationship with a person here, you won't save anything in the end. You'll lose everything. And you'll lose the only thing that matters, eternal life. We all know what Jesus said. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will it profit a man? But if you're willing to be hated by men for loving me, if you're willing to die on this earth, for confessing me, if you're willing to stick out and be out of place in a fallen world, you won't really lose anything. You'll gain the only thing that matters, the only thing that you can never lose, eternal life. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He goes on in verse 40 and says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, by little ones he actually means believers, he doesn't mean children. Whoever gives one of these believers only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So we might all nod our heads and say, great, but none of us know what he's talking about there probably. Like, what does he mean in the name of a prophet, in the name of a righteous man, in the name of a disciple? Jesus is saying that the believer who helps the prophet, who helps the righteous man, who helps the disciple fulfill their ministry, their calling, is an equal shareholder in that good work in the eyes of the Father. Even if your role is as simple as giving a cup of cold water to someone at church, your reward is the same as mine this morning. That's what Jesus is saying. So we're not just trying to recruit volunteers when I tell you everybody matters even if you help people find a parking spot here. I'm not saying everybody matters because I have to make you think it's important even though it's really not. That's not what we're doing. Jesus actually says, he says, listen, the gospel needs to go out. The great commission needs to be fulfilled. People need to be taught the word of God. I've sent people to do that. Whenever you help someone that I have called to do that, accomplish that task, you share in their reward. You have the same share in their reward as the person doing it. And Jesus is saying this so that for generations to come, people in the church would not look at preachers and evangelists and say, man, how epic must their reward be? I wish I had one of those giftings where I could be really useful to God. Jesus says, listen, that person, that minister, that pastor cannot do everything on their own. So you have to view coming alongside them and helping them fulfill what God's called them to do as making you an equal shareholder in that work. And so he chooses the most simple analogy he can. He says, even if it's given someone a drink when they're thirsty, he says, that's good enough. That's good enough. You're an equal shareholder in that work. So whenever you serve in the church, please always remember that. 
what you're doing is so directly connected to everything that goes on in the life of the church, so much more than any of us realize. Jesus isn't compartmentalizing it. He's not saying, yeah, well, you set up the coffee, but Jeff did the real ministry today. He's saying it all works together for my glory and for my purposes. And I hope that's encouraging to you. When he says he shall by no means lose his reward, he's alluding to the same truth that's laid out in Hebrews where he says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name. In that, you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God notices, he sees, he rewards, he remembers in this life, maybe, but infinitely better in the next life. He's called us to work together for his purposes. In Mark 6, it adds this to the story. It says, so they went out and preached that people should repent. It's worth just underlining repent. I think it's on your outlines. And I just say that because their message as they went out wasn't, here's Jesus, he's wonderful, he's great, he loves you, he wants to hug you. Their message was, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah is here. Turn away from whatever else you're following and turn toward him and follow him. Their message was change. Their message was repent. Their message wasn't, you're good just the way you are. It was change. Stop what you're doing. Follow Jesus. And then it says, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Just want to talk for one minute about anointing with oil because if you've been around the church at all, you've probably seen it. Maybe you think it's weird, but you just don't want to say anything because it seems really legit. So let's just explain this real quickly. It's only mentioned here in all four of the Gospels. We never see the disciples or the apostles doing it in the book of Acts. It only shows up less than five times in the New Testament. In the book of James, it says this. It says, is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. So if you're sick, you need to ask the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. So the first thing you need to see is it's the prayer offered in faith that restores the one who is sick. It's not the oil. It doesn't even specify what kind of oil. It's the prayer offered in faith that makes the sick person well, not the oil. So others, the oil's purpose was really symbolic. So some speculate that it was a way, as they prayed, of showing that the power wasn't coming from the people praying. It was coming from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit. And so pouring the oil was representative of God's power, God's anointing coming onto this person. Could be that. Others speculate that it was to help the person who was being prayed for release their faith by making the process more tangible. You might remember the woman with the issue of blood. Her faith is released when she touches the hem of the garment. And we'd say, that's really bad theology. That doesn't make any sense. But she still had enough faith through the process for Jesus to work and heal her. So maybe it's just a way to make the process more tangible. Others point out that oil was actually considered medicine at that time. Many of you know the parable Jesus will tell later of the good Samaritan. When the good Samaritan cleanses the injured man, Jesus says he cleanses his wounds with wine and oil because oil was medicinal then. So, so what does it all mean? Does it mean pray and take your medicine? It could. That's good advice. I think there's value in that. What's important is just that we see lots of examples in the New Testament of people being healed without oil, being used at all, on a planned basis and a spontaneous basis. So we don't want to get too hung up on it. I would say if it would help you release your faith as you're being prayed for, that's great. Go for it. If all it's going to do is make you think, am I going to break out in pimples on my forehead after this process is done, and it's a giant distraction, 
then don't do it. Don't do it. I don't think God's going to say, aren't you forgetting something? So it's something we see. It could be for a variety of reasons, but we don't even see the apostles practicing it consistently. So there's a few reasons why we might do that, but you have to make your own determination on that and weigh in on that. We just continue into the next chapter, Matthew 11, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in, and I want you to underline those last two words, their cities. In whose cities? In the cities of the disciples. I find such incredible comfort in this. So Jesus sent the disciples out to minister, for some of them away from their families, away from their spouses. And what does Jesus do while they're away, while the disciples are away? He goes to their cities. He goes to their houses. And he ministers there to their families. That's just incredible when you think about people like Banam Irani, who are in prison right now, knowing that Jesus is doing the same thing through the Holy Spirit right now. If you walk with Jesus and just focus on doing what he's asked you and called you to do, he won't allow it to wreck your kids or to wreck your family. He'll show up and minister in your home, in your marriage, in your family, in your kids. It only gets messed up when we do more than he's asked us to do, when we take on a bigger load than he's asked us to take on. God will never call anybody to further the gospel by neglecting their marriage or their family. He will never do that. He'll never, ever do that. We're going to shift gears and hit one last story. And this story is just like something from an HBO TV show. This is just ridiculous stuff. So flip over, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. This account shows up in Matthew and Luke's Gospels as well, but this is the most detailed one, so that's why we're going to go there. Mark 6, verse 14, for our next development. In Mark 6, 14, it says this, Now King Herod heard of him, he heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So Jesus' fame is spread as far as the palace of Herod even in the land of Israel, all the way to Herod's palace in Galilee. Herod's concern is that John the Baptist has come back to life. He doesn't think it's Jesus. He thinks it's the reincarnated John the Baptist. Herod's conscience is bothering him, causing him to have these thoughts, and we'll find out why in a minute. Others said, it is Elijah. The people were saying that because of an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Malachi, which stated that Elijah would reappear before the Messiah appeared. During his own ministry, Jesus himself explained that John the Baptist, who we're told came in the spirit of Elijah with a similar ministry, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. But many people didn't believe that, so they were still looking for Elijah to show up again in the flesh. And others said it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. Prophets, if you read the Old Testament accounts, were basically like the superheroes of their day. They did unbelievable stuff. So there was really nothing that people believed was impossible for a real, legit prophet. So they were saying, it, it's some weird stuff from some prophet. But now we'll find out why Herod has a guilty conscience. Verse 16, but when Herod heard, he said, no, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. 
because John, John the Baptist, had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John was a prophet. Here's the thing you need to go about, you need to know about prophets. They generally can't help themselves from speaking truth. Can't help it. They're just going to blurt it out. They're wired that way. They're super blunt speakers of truth. That's one of the ways you can spot someone who's probably got a prophetic gifting. They're not going to be tactful. They're very blunt about the truth and passionate about it. Very black and white. You may recall the sordid story of the Herod political dynasty, and we won't go into all of it. And when I get to the end of this, you'll be thinking, seriously, there's more? There's more. We won't get into all of it, but here's the short version. So Herod the Great is the ruler over Israel at the time when Jesus is born. Herod the Great is the king who issues the edict for all Jewish boys in Israel age two and under to be killed when he hears that the Messiah King has been born. He doesn't want to risk losing his throne, even based on the rumors that this Messiah is going to be a king. So he issues the order to kill all the boys two and under in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. That was Herod the Great. Herod the Great has a wife. She has a couple of kids. Then he decides that he doesn't really like his wife anymore, so he has her killed. But after a while, he misses her. I mean, those of you who've killed your wives can probably relate. He misses her, you know? And because he misses her, he can't stand the pain of looking at their kids because every time he looks at them, he sees her, so he kills the kids too. So now he has a fresh start, fresh start. So he takes another wife and then another wife. With one of those wives, he has a son. That son has a daughter, and that daughter's name is Herodias. With the other wife, Herod the Great has two sons, Philip and Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the Herod in our story today. Herodias ends up marrying her uncle Philip. They stay married for a while. They have a daughter. That'll be important. But Herodias gets bored, and she realizes she doesn't really love Uncle Phil anymore. So on a trip to Rome, she has a chance meeting with her other uncle, Herod Antipas. And she's like, oh, now I get why they call you the sexy uncle. And she hooks up with him. It's lust at first sight. She leaves Uncle Phil to hook up with Uncle Herod Antipas. The technical term for this situation is all kinds of messed up. That's the technical term for this. So what Herod has done with Herodias, taking it from her brother, being his niece, this is really, really messed up, and it's a serious violation of God's laws. Herod was in charge of the region of Galilee where John the Baptist is ministering, and John can't stand the fact that God's country, God's people are being governed by a man who has so little regard for what is right. It drives John crazy, and so he calls him out publicly verse 19 and this is what happens therefore Herodias held it against him she had a grudge against John because of this and wanted to kill him but she could not for Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man and he protected him and when he heard him he did many things and heard him gladly So by all indications, Herod knows that John is a real prophet from God. He recognizes this, but he's still ticked off about John calling him out about being married to his niece. So Herod probably would have killed John, but the Bible tells us earlier in the Gospels that John was extremely revered and popular in Israel at the time, and killing him may have instigated riots and created all kinds of problems in the territory Herod was charged with overseeing. He's a politician, so he doesn't want to cause that. So throwing him in prison provides a solution that covers all the angles. 
while John is in Herod's prison, Herod would call him out and say, let's have a conversation. He found it intellectually, existentially stimulating to talk to John. He's like, this is good. This is deep conversation. He found John to be a mystic. But he was really interested in John as a curiosity. He never responded to John's preaching to him. He never repented. And we know that because at the end of all their interactions, the idea is it was, okay, thanks, John. Back to prison now. That's usually how you can tell that someone hasn't responded to a preacher's message when they send the preacher back to prison after the message is over. Just a a small detail. Then verse 21, it says, Then an opportune, opportune for Herodias, an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself, so this is the daughter that Herodias had with Uncle Philip. So this is Herod Antipas's stepdaughter. When Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Just so we're clear, This is not ring around the rosy kind of dancing. This is the kind of dancing that uses props like poles. And when it says says she pleased Herod and those who sat with him, well, you can research the original language on your own. But Herod is drunk at this point. He's catcalling, and he impulsively, foolishly blabs out, ask me whatever you want. I'll give it to you. You think your family's weird. Okay. Verse 23, he also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give to you, up to half my kingdom. So this upstanding young lady needs to ask her career manager, her momager, what to do with that offer. It says, so she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Herod's not a moral guy. He breaks promises all the time. However, in this instance, there were all these witnesses, and it was a serious thing for a king to go back on an oath. Serious, serious thing. It was like treason. So out of pride... He keeps his word even when he knows it's not the right thing to do. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, when the disciples of Jesus heard about this, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. John dies a relatively quick and painless death. He gets an express pass to heaven. And what was waiting for him there would be indescribable. Luke's gospel tells us that out of the same type of interest he had in John the Baptist, Herod tried to have Jesus brought before him because he was curious about the ministry of Jesus. In Luke 9, it says, Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. Now, even though it would seem on the surface like a great opportunity for Jesus and the kingdom to have an audience with the ruler of the land, Jesus will never go and preach to Herod. He will never respond to that invitation. However, on the day that Jesus is crucified, you might remember, he will end up being brought before Herod in Jerusalem. Jesus is taken to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to deal with it. 
he says, wait a minute. Jesus is from Galilee. Isn't Herod Antipas in Jerusalem right now? And by a stroke of luck, he is. So Pilate sends him over to Herod Antipas because he's actually in charge of the area Jesus is from. And when that interaction happens in Luke 23, it says, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words. And then what does it say? But he answered him nothing. He answered him nothing. When Jesus appears before Pilate, Pilate will question Jesus, and Jesus will answer him. That same day, Jesus will be brought before the Sanhedrin. They'll question him, and he'll answer them. But he doesn't say a word to Herod. Apparently, Herod had rejected Jesus and the invitation of the gospel so many times, so severely, that the invitation for salvation no longer existed. No longer existed. He would not respond, so now he's reached the place where he cannot respond. No more explanation, no more discussion. Jesus won't even speak to this man. He had John the Baptist, the man Jesus calls the greatest man who had ever lived up to that point, the greatest of all the prophets, preached to him one-on-one, -on -one, a private audience, and he did not repent. He ran out of opportunities. This is the worst place you can be as a human being, the place where you reject Jesus and his invitation so many times that you reach the point where he says to you, I no longer have anything to say to you. We're done. There's not an infinite number of opportunities. Write this down. Rejecting God leads to silence from God. Rejecting God leads to silence from God. What sticks out to me from this very difficult teaching is that salvation is not a process. It's a solid line. It's not a process. It's not like the DMZ where it's a stretch of land that you make your way across. Salvation is not a process. You are on one side or the other. You are in death. You are in life. You are one or the other. You are flatlining. There is no pulse or there is a pulse. You are in death or you are in life. None of us are saved-ish. None of us. We are all either 100% saved or 100% lost. Some of us may be closer to the line of being saved than others, but even when you're right there by the line, you are still 100% saved or 100% lost. It's a line. Jesus is dead honest with us because he loves us. He loves us enough to say, if you love anything or anyone more than me, if you're holding back on obeying me because you're concerned how it will affect your relationship with somebody, then you need to ask yourself what side of the line you're on. You're either 100% saved or 100% lost, 100% alive or 100% dead. Because if you love anything or anyone more than me, Jesus said, you don't deserve me. You're not worthy of me. If you've been paying attention today, then you know I'm not taking liberties with the text. I'm not trying to be dramatic for being dramatic's sake. Jesus, I think, was even more blunt than I'm being. So let's be honest with ourselves about which side of the line we're on. If you would say, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting closer to that decision. You are still 100% lost. 
There are no points for being closer to the line. You're 100% lost or 100% saved by Jesus. 100% forgiven or 100% not forgiven. And if you're here today and there's something God is calling you to do, but if you're honest, you would say, I, I'm not acting on that because I'm too concerned about this relationship. What Jesus would say, being 100% honest, is he would say, you're worried about offending them? Don't you think you should be more concerned about offending me? That's what Jesus says to us plainly. He said, you should love me more than anybody else. You should also fear me more than anybody else. You worried what they're going to think about you? You should be worried what I'm going to think about you. You worried about hurting them? You should be worried about hurting me. That's what Jesus is saying. So if there's any decision you've been dragging your feet on because you're scared of man, a person, a man or a woman, stop. Do what Jesus wants you to do and make peace within yourself by saying, listen, I'm more afraid of God than I am of him. I love Jesus more than I love them. And at the end of the day, I'm more concerned about offending Jesus than I am about offending them. There will not always be the perfect solution where Jesus is happy, you're being obedient to him, and everybody else loves you. I know we all look for that. But when we look for that, what we usually do is we say, well, Jesus will forgive me, but they might not. And Jesus would say, don't, don't take advantage of my grace like that. That's not what it's for. It's not so that you can put him second. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first opportunity I always want to give is for anyone who's here today who would say, here's what I know, Jeff. I know that if I'm honest, I have not crossed that line. I've told myself, man, I'm 60% of the way there. I'm 80% of the way there. But today I understand that this is a line. It is a line I must cross. I want you to know that Jesus has died in your place so that everything you've ever done wrong, everything you're doing wrong, everything you ever will do wrong, instead of that building a case against you, that will one day be presented to the world. A case that you will lose. Instead of that outcome, God will forget everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do. That should have been part of the case against you. And instead of punishing you for that, he punished Jesus in your place. Because he loves you. Because he wants to bring you across that line. You don't need anything more to cross that line than to say, I'm ready to be at the place where I care more about Jesus than anything or anyone else. That's it. And you can make that decision today. And then for the rest of us, I include myself in this. I pray that, that what we've read and what we've heard from Jesus directly today would just put everything back in perspective for us everything back in perspective. Jesus' attitude is, what's the worst that man can do to you in this life? Kill you? Don't be afraid of that. Don't fear that. Don't ever fear the consequences of following God. He says, if you could see what that's going to gain you for eternity, you wouldn't be afraid. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your love for us and sending Jesus. And Jesus, I thank you for your word 
because you have been clear, you have been direct, you have been blunt out of love for us so that we would not be confused about what it means to follow you, so that we wouldn't have to live wondering what percentage we are saved, but so that we could know we are 100% saved, belonging 100% to you. Father, I pray in any of us where fear is ruling the way we live, in the name of your Son, Jesus, would you remove that fear of man and replace it with a healthy fear of you, which your word says is the beginning of wisdom. May we care more about offending you than offending man. May we care more about loving you than loving man. May we care more about your reputation than ours. May fear have no place in our lives because as your word says, perfect love casts out fear. Your Holy Spirit cannot coexist with fear. And so if there's fear in us right now, we pray that you would ramp up and intensify and fill us up with your Holy Spirit at the expense of the fear that is in our lives. May we live for you the way that you deserve to be lived for God. Because you are worth more. You're the treasure. You're the goal. You're the prize, Jesus. It's you, God. It's you. Would you just be still before the Lord a moment? Pray. Ask him to reveal to you any area where you're being ruled by fear. I believe he wants to set you free from that this morning.